0: Well, if you have your Bible, uh, turn with me to John chapter 18. We'll be looking at uh, verses 1 through 14 this morning. Uh, last week, we paused from our series through John's gospel to take a look at uh, how a Christian should respond to the coronavirus. We tried to approach it from a gospel-saturated uh, lens. And this morning, we returned to the gospel of John. And you know, sometimes uh, the whole approach of expositional preaching that is going through the Bible section by section, book by book, is criticized because it's said it's not really that relevant anymore. In other words, it ignores uh, current events. It doesn't deal with things as they're happening. But the incredible thing about it is, as we take that approach, somehow it it always ends up speaking to us, the Bible does, where we are sometimes actually in pretty stunning ways. It's as though God designed it that way by his providence. Uh, For example, just one week before COVID-19 started to uh, take over the national news and terrorize uh, basically all of humanity, um, we happen to be in the last part of John chapter 16, where Jesus says this to his disciples, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Now, I can't think of more relevant uh, words for us right now. Uh, Certainly, we're at a time when we are going through tribulation. And I know the, the context for those words by Jesus was about persecution at the hands of those who would oppose Christ's followers, but certainly it's the application is broader than that. And we know that we are right now in a time of tribulation. Many have lost uh, their jobs. College students have been sent home early. Uh, the stock market, the financial world has crashed. The economy collapsing. Uh, people, of course, are getting sick. People that, that we know, or at least that we're reading about, reading about are dying. And so... We know that every time we check the news app on our phones, it's like a jolt to our system. These indeed, these indeed are difficult times. But Jesus promises his peace. He says, in me you can have peace. He says, I'm giving you peace. Not the kind of peace the world gives, but a different kind. And we saw when we looked at that passage just a couple of weeks ago that what Jesus was saying was, if you've trusted in me, then then whatever happens to you, it's okay because nothing or no one can take your soul. I've come, he says, to reconcile you to God by believing in me. And for those who have been made right with God, they really do have nothing to fear, not even death itself, because what awaits us, as we just sang about, is an eternal home with Christ. And so what Jesus says when he says, I've overcome the world, is nothing can stop God's plan of restoration. Nothing can stop God's plan to, to make right everything that's broken with this world. So with that recognition, you can have peace. It's comforting news then, and certainly it's comforting news now. This morning we're going to be in John 18, as I mentioned, and it too is, a, is very pertinent to our situation If you have a Bible close by, uh, please turn with me to John 18. If you don't, that's okay. The words will appear on the screen as I read them. Uh, John chapter 18. Let me start by reading verses 1 through 3. The word of the Lord reads this way. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Now there are three. There are four gospel writers. Uh, of course, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And, and two of those we know were eyewitnesses. That we Matthew and John. And even though the other two, uh, Mark and Luke, we believe uh, got much of their information from people very close to Jesus, Mark uh, who leaned heavily on Peter, um, all four of the gospel writers include much of the same material. The first three gospels are called the synoptic gospels and that's from it comes from a Greek word that means seeing it all together. John's gospel is a little different. He writes from a different perspective in that, he includes uh, some events that don't appear in the other gospels, and he omits some events that do appear in those. Um, there are a number of things that John does that I think are unique, um, but there are really four that kind of three that stand out, I guess, really One is the, the percentage of John's book that's devoted to the last week, of Jesus' life. John spends more time writing about the last week of Jesus' life than any of the other gospel writers, and really he devotes more time to that than anything else. The second thing that makes John's gospel unique is what's called a high Christology, and that means he doesn't really start, he doesn't start with a genealogy, he doesn't start with a birth narrative, um, he, he kind of jumps right into the pre-existence and full deity of Jesus the Christ. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The other thing that John does that is unique is he takes great pains to show how Jesus is the fulfillment of everything in the Old Testament. Not only is John the only one to record Jesus' words to the religious leaders uh, on the Sabbath in Jerusalem in John 5.39, where he says, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is they that bear witness about me. Not only is John the only one to record that, But by way of the I am statements, John shows how all the things that were so critical to Israel, all the things that were so important to them, things like bread and water and light, the temple, all of those things find their ultimate fulfillment in Jesus. Jesus is the true bread, John 6. He is the living water, John 7. He is the light of the world, John 8. John's gospel is dripping with pointers back to the Old Testament as a way to showcase Jesus as the Messiah. And here it is, the night before Jesus would be crucified. It's Thursday night. Jesus would be nailed to a cross on Friday morning at 9 a.m. But before that would take place, he must endure the events that would lead to his crucifixion, uh, namely Judas' betrayal and Jesus' arrest. And John tells us that all of these events took place where? They took place in a garden. Well, if you know much about this, the big story of the Bible, the, the story of humanity, know that it all begins in a garden where Adam and Eve are created by God and they're, they're given sort of this beautiful responsibility to fill out the world culturally and to enjoy, to fully enjoy all of the things that God has made without the presence of sin but Adam and Eve, as we know, you recall the story, they revolt against God. Um, they, They don't trust in God's provision, so they rebel against him. And as a result, everything in the world would change thereafter. Pain, death, sickness, deadly viruses would enter the world. And most devastatingly, man would be born separated from the very God who created them. The curse of sin would pass down generation to generation from Adam, leaving no one untouched, leaving no one unscathed. Everything bad that we encounter in this world goes back to what happened in the garden in Genesis. But here in this garden, that we just read about in John's gospel, Jesus, the second Adam, would begin to reveal with greater clarity how he will reverse those catastrophic sin effects that originated in the garden. The first Adam lost everything in a garden. The second Adam now begins to win it all back there. And it would be through his dying and resurrection that this would all take place. So it's, again, it's the night before Jesus would be killed. Jesus and his disciples are in a garden, and now a group of people have come to arrest him. And the Greek word that translated band in some versions, verse 3, is actually a fairly technical term that refers to at least a cohort of 200 men. Now, it was often more than that. So you're talking about 200 men. I think if, we had to, if drones existed back then and, and could give us a sort of an overhead picture of what was going on, it would be fascinating. Here you have all these men with, with torches and with weapons appro- approaching Jesus. And because this was the festival season in Jerusalem, these men were already stationed northwest of the temple complex, and now they're mobilized and they're ready to go. Now the whole thing is a bit ironic, really, when you consider it. Jesus had been teaching and modeling peace. He's healed the lame, given sight to the blind, fed the hungry, grieved with the brokenhearted, and yet the Roman government has chosen, along with some religious leaders, to go after Him with a battalion of armed soldiers. Now look at what happens in verse 4. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to Him, came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? Now, I want you to notice something that's very important about this passage. Everything about this scenario features Jesus actually taking the initiative. First of all, Jesus and the disciples go to a place, verse 3 uh, tells us that, that Jesus and his disciples had been frequently before. Now you would think if Jesus were trying to hide or trying to avoid the authorities, he would go to a place that neither Judas nor anyone else knew about. But he goes to a familiar place. We're also told that as this band of armed soldiers approaches Jesus, he doesn't duck behind Peter, he doesn't hide behind one of the others. No, knowing what happens, he actually comes forward, he moves forward. This is huge. Martin Luther found this to be one of the most fascinating parts of this particular chapter. And theologically it's important. If Jesus' death were just some cruel random act... Or something Jesus never expected or something Jesus didn't want to do but was forced to do. It would change things, wouldn't it? It certainly would would alter things drastically. But it was none of those things. Jesus didn't shrink back into the darkness of the olive trees. I've been to that garden and and the trees are huge and when darkness sets in, you can't see anything. He didn't play a cat and mouse game with the imperial troops. He stepped forward out of the crowd. New Testament scholar D.A. Carson comments this way. He says, Jesus offers his life not as a pathetic martyr buffeted by the ill winds of a cruel fate. In full knowledge of what was to befall him, Jesus went out and he asked his question. Now here's what this reveals to us. This is our first point this morning. The voluntariness of Jesus' dying mission reveals the depth of his sacrificial love. Remember, Jesus didn't have to give himself up. In fact, he makes this point clear repeatedly to his disciples. No one takes my life from me. No one takes it. I give it up. He would say elsewhere that the Father loves me. He identifies as the one the Father sent by virtue of his self-sacrifice, as giving himself up. If we don't understand Jesus' death as voluntary, then we don't really understand the nature of his love. I have to be very candid with you. For a little while... I really didn't want to make this point. I wanted to write something else as our first point, as an explanation of this section. There is tremendous pressure for uh, preachers and pastors to come up with something novel, something new, something that no one else has ever discovered or or a new interpretation. And here we are, we've been talking about the love of God since John chapter 3. It's just a recurring theme over and over from John 3 where where Jesus says, uh, For God so loved the world. And then over and over this takes center stage. There's a reason that theologians over the decades have referred to the book of John as the gospel of love. John's gospel really elucidates for us the overarching theme of the whole Bible, and that is God's love for us through Jesus Christ. And so there was this temptation that I had. Look, I, I've said these sorts of things before. Is this really the point that I want to make? But I couldn't get away from this, this, this voluntariness. And if you're, if you're a kid and you're watching at home with your parents, uh, that just means it was something that Jesus wanted to do. He wasn't forced to do it. He wasn't coerced to do it. He wanted to surrender His life because that's how much He loves the world He created. That's how much He loves His, his own people the fact that Jesus' surrender was totally voluntary and his initiative is critical if we're actually going to understand the depth of his love. In this moment, as in every moment of his earthly ministry, Jesus was a willing sufferer. He went through what he went through out of love. Now look at verse 5. They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now, in our Bibles, Jesus' response reads, I am he. But actually, the English translators have supplied the word he uh, to make it more readable for us. Um, but that's not the way the actual the Jesus answers. When the battalion says they're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth he literally says, I am. Now, this is devastating stuff. Remember when God appeared to Moses in the burning bush in in Exodus chapter 3, and God determines to send Moses uh, to to have a word to to Pharaoh to release God's people. And Moses says, well, why should I be the one to do this? I don't even speak very well. And God says, well, who is it that made your tongue? And Moses says, yeah, but I don't really know what to say. I mean, what am I going to say if they ask me, who is it that sent you? And remember, God says, tell them, I am sent you. This is a Hebrew word to be, Yahweh, which means I will be what I will be. It indicates God's self-existence, the fact that God is the creator and sustainer of everything. When God calls himself, I am, he's saying there is no beginning to me. There is no end to me. Nor is there a because. I just simply exist and always have. I don't depend on anyone or anything. I don't need anyone or anything. Instead, all persons, and for that things really all matter, depend entirely on me for every second. That's what God's saying by this uh, self-identification. And when Jesus uses the divine name, He's saying, "I am the very God of the universe. I am the Creator who has come down to rescue you." And this this is what distinguishes Christianity, by the way, from every other religion. Religion is about trying to do enough, trying to work enough, trying to serve enough, trying to sacrifice enough, and in some cases, even trying to punish ourselves enough in order to gain God's acceptance. Janine and I were watching a show the other night where there's this uh, really tough guy. His name is Mike, and nobody stands a chance against Mike. Sometimes he goes up against four or five people, he always wins. He'll take on a huge group of people, and he always defeats them with his bare hands. Just this incredible uh, person. Well, in the episode we watched the other night, uh, inexplicably, Mike goes into this neighborhood, this very dangerous neighborhood, and he gets pummeled by five guys. He gets beaten, kicked, stabbed. And the thing that was inexplicable is he never once fights back. He never once tries to fight against these people. He just stands there and gets kicked and punched and stabbed. And so we couldn't figure out, like, what, what's going on here? Why is he doing this? So I kept asking Janine, like, why did he do that? Like, I don't understand. Do you understand what he's doing? She loves it when I keep asking questions during the show. Um, but what we finally realized was that he was actually, he was punishing himself. He was allowing himself to be punished, to be beaten, because of some guilt that he was experienced over some past offense. Now, having watched the series, we knew what he had done, But he felt like, if I can just be pummeled to near death, then maybe I can pay for this crime. This is really the nature of religion. It's about trying to get God's approval any way we can. Trying to find a way to get to God through our own efforts, even if it's through self-inflicted pain. But Jesus says, I am God, and I've come for you. You don't have to work your way to me. In fact, you cannot work your way to me. It's impossible to work your way to the Father because the Father God is holy. You don't have to earn your way to God. I've actually come for you. There are a couple of cars that we as a family we used to run into all the time, either taking kids to school or driving around the neighborhood. And These are people we don't know, but but we did notice their cars and they each had some distinguishing marks. One was a Chevy SUV with a vanity license plate, S N T F A C E. Now we can never figure out what that stood for. The only thing I can think of is snot face, um, but that doesn't seem like you. It's something you want to pay for to have on your car. So if you if you if you're watching and you can come up with what that stands for, just send me an email. We've we've always wondered about that. Uh, there's another car that we we see a lot and and it has a window sticker in the back that looks like this. Coexist. Now I'm sure you've seen those. These are fairly popular, and um, you see them in the back of windows or bumper stickers, and, and, and I love the idea of coexisting, if by that you mean people loving each other as they are, people respecting and honoring people as image bearers of God, people caring about other people regardless of their religious background, their skin color, their race, uh, their education, or whatever, so if that's what's meant by it, then I can get fully behind it, but I don't think that that's what this is about, the phrase really reveals really the basic, e- basic ethos of this secular, postmodern post-Christian culture, and that is that all religions are the same, they all lead in the same direction to the same deity or whatever. And therefore it would be, it would be foolish for us, it would be arrogant for us to suggest, or certainly to make the argument that, that one quote "religion is superior to any other. But Jesus by declaring that He is God, distinguishes Himself from every other teacher or prophet, because instead of being a prophet to kind of come to point people to God, or to teach people how to live, Jesus comes actually to rescue us, to deliver us, to bridge the gap, as it were, between sinful, broken, rebellious people and a holy God. If you're looking for something to do with your kids while you're quarantined, there's a series of one-minute videos at thegospelcoalition.org, and they're called One Minute Apologetics. And they're very, very quick and very clear. They're done by biblical scholars all over the world. And they answer relevant questions like, why is look within a bad philosophy? Or what question should unsettle the atheist most? Well, in one of the videos, Dr. Scott Oliphant answers the question, how is Christianity categorically different than every other religion? Now, here's
1: how he answers it. Let me just allow you to see this video. I would say one of the main ways that Christianity is categorically different from every other religion is that Christianity alone says God saves sinners. And what that means is that we have put ourselves into a predicament, a predicament of sin, which has affected and infected not only every single human being, but has infected the entire world. The Bible tells us that the whole creation groans because of our fall into sin what's the solution to that in almost every other religion the solution to whatever problem they decide is there is that you work yourself out of it you get yourself out of it either by being better by being good by being someone who's acceptable In Christianity alone, we say, God alone can solve the problem that we brought into the world. This is what makes Christianity unique. God, through the Lord Jesus Christ, saves sinners. So the
0: difference between Christianity and every other religion is every religion says you can work your way to God. You can get out of the situation you're in. The Christian faith says, no, God saves sinners, and He did so by sending His Son, Jesus, God in the flesh, who would live for us, who would die for us, who would voluntarily sacrifice Himself to pay the penalty for our rebellion. Now, one of the things that this means by Jesus identifying Himself as God is that we can't read what Jesus says and just have sort of a generally good opinion about Him. You can't regard him as a good teacher, a wise leader, an insightful prophet, but not God. Again, Jesus' self-identification is too scandalous. Just a few chapters earlier in John 8, to his critics, Jesus says, Before Abraham was, I am. Again, invoking the divine name. This is the sort of person you can't just kind of appreciate. In other words, he can't just be a guy you listen to and glean some nuggets from on how to become a better person. Would you try to mine nuggets from a delusional maniac? If we just look at Jesus as this great teacher, as someone who said He was God, but He wasn't really God, but He had some good things to say, none of it makes sense. If Jesus is not God, then why bother with Him at all? We'd be much better ignoring everything He said. But if Jesus is God, and He is, then He demands our worship, Our love, our surrender, our obedience, and our reverence. He is the supreme authority. And this is something his accusers are starting to realize, though their eyes are blind to the full extent of his identity. Look at verse 6. When Jesus said this to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So at Jesus' answer, they fell to the ground as though they were dead, they just collapsed. Not because they were clumsy or unsteady. These are Roman troops. These are imperial soldiers. These are battle tested, hard nosed, tough skinned, unimpressionable men. And their legs become like jelly when Jesus answers them because whether they fully realize it or not, they are in the presence of the living God. And no one can stand firm in the presence of God. We see this throughout Scripture. When they get back up, Jesus doesn't mock them. He doesn't reprove them. He doesn't even give them that sort of, I told you so look. What's on Jesus' mind is once again mercy. Look at verses 8 and 9. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have not lost one. As I mentioned a moment ago, when we read the passion narrative of John, we read John's gospel, we we see these pointers back to the Old Testament, all the ways that John is, is basically telling his audience, and, and us by extension, that Jesus is the fulfillment of prophecy. Jesus is uh, the long-awaited Messiah, the only hope for the world. All the things that we desperately need, like light and food and water and guidance and all of these things, John tells us Jesus is the fulfillment of that. Now we see, we just saw even how Jesus is. Uh, this passage points us back to the opening chapters of Genesis. And here at this event, Jesus' own words are fulfilled in John 17 I have not lost one of those that you gave me. With his own life in danger, Jesus says, Let them go, take me. Does this remind you of another story in the Bible? One that where God says through the one He sent, let my people go. Could it be possible that John is reminding his readers of something he's already hinted at, that Jesus is the better Moses? That all of this Bible points to Jesus with His own life in danger. Jesus says, let them go, take me. Now here's our second point, And we'll move through these next two a little quicker. Even at His darkest hour, Jesus concern was for the well-being and final safety of others. Now I think this tells us something about something that has been done and I do think it tells us informs us in something of that we're supposed to do. It tells us something has been done and that is that Jesus stands in for his followers and really this is the essence of the gospel. We we have rebelled against God because of uh, the rebellion the, the revolt of Adam and Eve each person is born self-loving not God-loving. Each person is born uh, resisting and reacting against God's authority. Here we are, we are. We're marching to the beat of our own drums. We're doing what we want to do. We're, we're seeking our own good. And we are disobeying God. We're not loving God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We're not obeying all the commands. We have disobeyed God. We have, we have fallen short of God's standard. And we are then deserving of God's eternal punishment. But Jesus comes, and He stands in for us. Again, He lives the perfect life that we've been called to live. He died on the cross, the very death that we deserve. He stands in for us, so that all those who believe on Jesus could be reconciled to God and have eternal life. So, so this, I think, tells us something that's been done, of course. It tells us much about Jesus, and, a certain, and certainly strengthens our faith when we get weak. The 19th century english bishop jc ryle wrote this let this thought abide in our hearts and refresh our souls we have a savior who is far more willing to save us than we are willing to be saved and this is the, the power and the beauty of god's salvation he comes and he makes alive those who are spiritually dead he makes us he gives us the ability to have faith and to trust on jesus So again, certainly we're told something that's been done, and that's really the heart of it. Christ stood in for us. But I think we're also given some direction on what to do. Remember, if you've been following us through this series on John, we saw a few weeks ago where Jesus washed the disciples' feet, and, and he says, I'm giving you an example to follow, which didn't necessarily mean washing everyone's feet, but serving sacrificially says, so I'm giving you an example to follow that you might serve others, that you might look out for others even before yourselves. Now here, I think, is the example to follow. We show concern for the well-being and the safety of others even ahead of our own interests. It, it's happened really much less in the last few days, but when the coronavirus outbreak became national news, international news, and churches started suspending their worship services, there were some who took a very, I don't know, even a condemning approach and said, I'm choosing faith over fear. Well, when we ignore the warnings of medical professionals, when we spurn the instruction of public officials, we're not choosing faith over fear. It's choosing selfishness over love for neighbor. Of course, we want to worship together. We want to be together. We, we, we don't want, I would much rather not be sitting here preaching in an empty auditorium or mostly empty auditorium. We want to be together. We want to carry one another's burdens and love one another and pray for one another and do all of those things together. But we don't want to do so by callously ignoring the health and well-being of others. We don't want to ignore those public uh, instructions and, and, and under the guise of, well, we're just worshiping God together. No, we follow Christ's example by looking out for the best interest of others. Christ has looked out for us, so to speak, by standing in for us. The ultimate sacrifice, so that we who have been redeemed can look out for others. Now let's wrap up this section, verses 10 through 14. Then Simon Peter, having a sword... "...drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear." The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, "...put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me?" So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Of course, Caiaphas had no idea what he was saying, at least the degree to which he was actually sharing or revealing God's great plan all along. After three years of walking with Jesus, spending virtually every moment with him, Peter, he still doesn't really get it. How many times had Jesus told the disciples, I've come here to, to suffer. I'm going to surrender my life. I'm leaving you and... Even when, when Jesus tells His followers that He will suffer and Peter pulls them aside, He says, look, don't talk like that. Don't say those things. It will never happen to you. Jesus turns at Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. Now we would think that that comment would actually stick in Peter's mind. But that that would make a lasting impression. But here it is, the moment at hand. Peter seemingly forgets everything that Jesus has said. He gets out his sword and he attacks. He cuts off the ear of the high priest's servant. And yet, and I love this, this is so rich to me. Jesus doesn't blast Peter. He doesn't say, Why are you still opposing me? I'm supposed to die for people like you who still don't get it. No, Jesus very gently rehearses with Peter what? He he rehearses with him the gospel. He says, in essence, the cup. Which is the symbol of God's wrath on human evil, is a cup that I must drink to satisfy God's righteous anger so that a people could be delivered. But I drink it willingly, not for the top performers or the wisest thinkers, but for the weak, the unreliable, the forgetful, those who are prone to wander and turn to idols. So he says, put your sword away. This is why I came. Now here's our final point. Nothing in life, not even our own ignorance, doubt, or failure will diminish Jesus' love for us. For those who have trusted in Christ, for those who are clinging to Jesus alone, for those who have turned, they've repented from their own sin, they've turned from their own self-salvation project, they're really believing in Jesus, There's nothing that will diminish Jesus' love for us. Here we see Jesus' love for His people. It's infallible. It's never-ending. It's proactive. It's redemptive. It's self-generative. It takes the initiative, which is so encouraging. God's love for me, His approval of me, His commitment to me, doesn't depend on my growth, my insights, my behavior, even my resolve, but on Jesus' resolve for me. The gospel is the good news that announces that Jesus is unwaveringly devoted to His children in spite of their inconsistent devotion to Him. As one person has said, the gospel is not the command to hang on to Jesus. Rather, it is the promise that no matter how weak and unsuccessful our efforts may be, how forgetful we are of God's promises, God is always holding on to us in Christ. And here's why we need to hear this. Because we forget this. When a virus sweeps across our world and and an uncertainty plagues us, we start to wonder what's next. We forget about the steadfast nature of God's love. We forget that God loves us and He actually does have a plan for us that is for our good and His glory. I think that as we go through the... The fairly incredible range of emotions that we experience in this pandemic that we're in, the way that we respond reveals the answer, I think, to two very important questions. One is, what is it that I worship? Because the reality is, every single person is a worshiper. We all worship something. Even an atheist worships something. Now, I'm not saying by that that everybody gets down on their knees and they praise a certain object or whatever it is. But we create idols in our hearts, things we worship, things we actually treasure the most. Whenever we look to something or someone to give us ultimate satisfaction, ultimate happiness or meaning, we actually worship that something or someone. For some, it's money. And and they're watching the stock stock market like crazy, and they're thinking. Of course, they're not worshiping their money; they're not singing praises to it. But they're cherishing, and their confidence is really in their money. and And when the stock market has this incredible crash or unprecedented historical drop, they feel very uncertain about themselves and the world. For some, for others, what they worship is their health. For some, it's a hobby. For some, it's pleasure. For some, it's reputation. And we can tell what we worship by reflecting on how we would respond if it were taken away. That really is the the key. How would you respond if what you love, if if, if this certain thing was taken away? Some of you may already be thinking about, will there be football this this fall? And maybe you're thinking, what am I going to do if I can't watch Alabama football? If you're thinking, I can't live without this, of course no one would ever say that. But if you're thinking, how am I going to survive without this, it may be something you worship. One way to find out what we worship is to ask ourselves the question, what am I most afraid of? Because that exposes what we're most concerned about losing. This pandemic will help us answer that question. I think it also, I think the way we respond, it also answers another question. And that is, how loved do I really believe that I am by God? Do I really believe that I'm loved? If we're terrified with what may come next and how it could possibly be for our good, it may be because we don't really believe that God loves us. It may be because we believe that God's love for us is all dependent upon our obedience, our ups and downs, how faithful we are to Him. It may be because we don't really understand the nature of God's love. Well, this passage that we've looked at this morning shows us the depth of God's love by revealing to us Jesus' willingness to suffer, Jesus' willingness to die for us, there is no greater demonstration of love. Now maybe you're sitting in front of your TV right now and, and the Holy Spirit is working in your heart. And I have a friend who's a longtime attorney who was separated from his wife. He was staying in a, in a hotel. He turned on the TV and started watching preaching. And he said, I was, con- I was broken, convicted of my sin, and turned to Christ for forgiveness. So maybe you're sitting, maybe you're in your living room, maybe you're traveling, maybe you're sitting with your family, and the Holy Spirit is bringing you to the recognition that what you're really trusting in is your own ability, your finances, your own goodness, your own service, your own sacrifice. Well, God may be impressing upon your heart. And and what John, I think, really wants us to know from this passage is that God's love is steadfast, immovable. Christ's love is so deep that He actually took the willingness, He took the initiative to die for us so that by believing in Him, we could have the fullness of life and life eternal. May God give you the grace to respond the way He's calling you to respond today. Let's pray. Our Father in Heaven, we praise You this morning again for the steadfast love of Christ. Uh, We thank You this morning that uh, even even when we're forgetful and even when we fail, even when when it doesn't really register for us and we take matters into our own hands the way Peter did, that You are merciful and kind and You don't take Your love from us. I want to pray for those this morning, Lord, who are discouraged. I want to pray for those who are just scared to death about what may happen next. Will their family be the next victim of COVID-19? I want to pray for those who are maybe, you're, you're drawing them to yourself this morning and they, they realize that they don't really know you. But I pray that you would bring them to saving faith. I pray for those who are uh, those who are beaten down, exhausted, frustrated, struggling, tired, weak. I pray that you would give them rest in Christ. And I pray for those who are self-righteous and puffed up, those who are thinking, I don't need another message about God's love. I know this already. Father, will you break them down, reveal to them their own sinfulness and rebellion, and cause them to run to Jesus. Minister to our souls, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.